You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are really delighted today to be joined by Dr. Tyson Bell. He's an MD and assistant professor of medicine in divisions of infectious diseases and international health and pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. He's also the director of the medical intensive care unit and director of the UVA summer medical leadership program. Tyson, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. So let's start with you and your personal story and how you migrated to medicine. I see from your bio, you were born in Boston, raised in Lynchburg. You did your undergraduate work at UVA, African American and African Studies. You then migrated to Columbia to pursue medical degree, trained up in Mass General as a resident, did an infectious disease fellowship at Mass Gen and Brigham and Women's Hospital Program critical care at NIH. Then you migrated back to UVA and you've really centered UVA again as the, as the, as the core part of your career and raising your family. And, and so tell us a little bit about that arc and how you, how that all evolved. Well, I must say that a lot of people told me when I was growing up, you, you tend to find yourself back home and in the place that you want to be. And that's certainly the case for me right now. And as you point out, Uh, My journey has been filled with a lot of amazing experiences and meeting amazing people. It started with very meager beginnings, though. Um, I would say that from an early age, I wanted to be a physician. And I was a kid who grew up in the inner city in Lynchburg, Virginia, underserved community. Uh, Success wasn't assumed for children in my neighborhood. But one thing that I did have was regular exposure to healthcare. I had asthma that was fairly severe. It landed me in the hospital a couple of times. And one of the therapies at that time was to get allergy shots. And so I would come to the doctor's office maybe two times a week, three times a week and get these immunizations. And in the process of that, and when in retrospect, I think I probably got normalized to the concept of being around healthcare professionals. So it wasn't uh, such a large jump for me to think that I could do something like that because I saw them so regularly that Um, You know, I saw them on good days and on bad days. And once I told them that I wanted to be a physician, you know, they believed in me. And, you know, I learned a little bit more about kind of what they do and and how healthcare works. I also had a black dentist in my neighborhood who I went to, who I also told him that I wanted to be a physician at an early age. And uh, he started calling me Dr. Bell when I came into the dentist's office and actually wrote in his records, um, you know, Dr. Bell comes for a dental cleaning. In retrospect, I think, you know, these affirmative experiences did a couple of things for me. So one, you know, one instance with my dentist, he literally wrote this into existence for a child that he knew was high risk. I was the first to go to college on both sides of my family. So obviously, you know, no healthcare professionals, uh, you know, at that sort of level. But also it, it made the dream seem like it was achievable. And, you know, as a child, I don't know what I'm actually up against, but um, you know, these people certainly did know. And so making that more of a, an experience that I could achieve and making that granular and even, you know, visual in some instances was, you know, how that seed got planted. 
you know, even with that help along the way, my success depended so much on external factors coming together. And, you know, I, I want to be humble about this. I have no doubt that if I had to live my life over again, it's very unlikely that I would have become a physician because so many things had to align at the right place at the right time for that to happen. Uh, so, for example, my third grade teacher who recognized that I probably belonged in a gifted program and shuttled me to that program. Um, I had an 11th grade civics teacher who saw at that point I was underachieving relative to my ability who gave me a detention, not because I did anything wrong, but just to pull me outside of class and get me away from my friends and just ask me, you know, what was really my dream? And I told her I want to be a physician. And she said, well, you can do it. I have no uh, doubt of your ability, but you're not applying yourself. And so she challenged me. At that point, I was probably a, a C, B minus student. She told me I'm going to finish out the rest of the year taking AP courses and I'm going to get A's in all of them. And that's exactly what happened. And she wrote a letter for me to get into the University of Virginia. I had a track coach who taught me how to get the most out of a limited time that I have to train. In high school, I worked three jobs because my income helped support the household. And I only had about an hour, an hour and a half of practice that should have been three hours because I had to go work. Um, so he worked the hell out of me for that hour and a half that he had me. Um, but I learned how to you know, really focus my attention when I needed to and get the most out of the time that I have. And so these are all people who didn't have to take extra time, but they did take extra time to work with me to keep me on the path or when I deviated off to put me back on that path. And ultimately, that's what led to my success. And when I think about the fact that people from my economic level in medical school uh, from the, the lowest uh, income quartiles make up 4% of those who are in medical school, you kind of understand that the there are a lot of barriers that people from my neighborhood had to overcome. And so many others who were just as smart, if not smarter than I was, was who did not have the stars aligned for them the way that it did for me and weren't able to achieve what I achieved. And so it's humbling, but it's a reminder that uh, there's just you know, so much opportunity that, you know, economic disparities and, you know, the effects of systemic racism have had on just the potential of our entire country. Thanks so much. Over to Andrew. Yeah, thank you, Steve. Taysen, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned your asthma experience as a child. And, you know, I was very similar to you in that regard. Um, you know, I grew up with asthma and allergies and was in the doctor's office, you know, every week at least once a week to get allergy shots. And I remember that time I was, it didn't inspire me to become a doctor, but it inspired me to think that doctors were the smartest people that I knew. And so I always had a great amount of respect for the profession. And, you know, like you, I'm, I'm assuming that the treatment enabled you to run track. My treatment enabled me to become a swimmer and, you know, pushing through those obstacles really does teach you the kind of you know, perseverance that I think you need to get, you know, any kind of advanced degree, much less, you know, a medical degree, which is really intensive work between your medical degree and then your postdoc and all that stuff. My attraction to the field uh, was very similar to yours that, you know, these were clearly very smart people. But what I also enjoyed about healthcare was that 
you get to apply your skills across a range of many different kinds of people and conditions. And so, you know, there, you know, oftentimes we're such a siloed society that your your interactions tend to be with folks who are very similar to you sometimes. But in healthcare, you know, you could be taking care of a CEO in one room and then their bedmate might be someone who is homeless. And as a physician, you have to use your skills you know, not only to, you know, figure out what's happening with the patient, how best to treat them, but also how to interact with people that have such a very different life experience. And one of the reasons that, you know, I, I would never claim the mantle of being the smartest person in the room, but one thing that I've learned how to do is really connect with folks who come from very different sorts of backgrounds. And a lot of that just relates to the fact that my success depended on being able to learn how to work with others and depend on others. And, you know, folks in my family and my background were the ones who often get overlooked in the professional setting. So, you know, the experiences that I've had, you know, struggling with healthcare, trying to get resources, you know, many of the disparities that we see in healthcare are things that I've experienced personally. It's easier in my instance to connect with some of those stories and just see people who might otherwise, uh, you know, not get the time of day or attention. So that's what I've really enjoyed that, you know, when I walk into the room, my, my job is to do the best I can for the patient, no matter what their circumstances and where they come from. Do you think that that kind of experience and that mentality, that mindset, Tyson, got you to the point where you became not only, a, you know, a successful physician, but a successful communicator of medical issues because you know that's one of the things that we've all noticed that you and you know some other people like Celine Gounder, Monica Gandhi, Lena Wen, Peter Hotez, you're the people that we've turned to during this pandemic. You know, we trust our doctors and we trust the way they communicate. You've really turned that corner as as someone who's not just a physician but a communicator. It, it's funny because if you had asked me two years ago, would I be doing things like this, um, you know, even recording a podcast like this today, I would have said, no way. You know, my comfort spot is being in the middle of an ICU surrounded by a team and uh, using the collective input from everyone to try to, you know, do what's best for the patient. And so, you know, the thing that I will point out first that's very important is that whenever you see or hear from me, I'm never alone. I'm drawing on the experience and the insight of both my colleagues who I lean on for help in trying to process some of this information myself in order to communicate. And the people that I've talked to who have questions about the pandemic and how to manage it, listening is become a very hard skill to really focus on nowadays, especially now that you know, folks who may not, you know, may not be vaccinated or, or may not be adhering to public health measures, you know, are really entrenched in their camps. And it's become, COVID has become a proxy for the cultural and political wars that waged on long before it. It's just the latest sort of battlefront. And so to cut through all that, it does take a willingness to be able to listen, but listen in a very non-judgmental sort of way where you can figure out you know, everyone has their specific reasons for why they're making or not making specific health choices. Our job as physicians and communicators is to figure out what those levers are and try to manipulate them as much as possible without offending people or, or making it clear that there's one camp or the other and validating people's concerns. What I've found is that there's usually an underlying reason why someone has chosen not to get vaccinated. 
And a lot of times it, it doesn't actually, you know, have anything to do with politics, uh, which makes sense because when folks get sick in my ICU, I'm in an interesting community where we have, you know, both liberal and conservative elements that are, you know, really in real close proximity to each other. But my ICU is not a political environment. When people are fighting for their lives, that's very nonpartisan. I think likewise, when, you know, health decisions are on the table, people just want to get information from someone that they can trust. And in some instances, you know, that might be me. In some instances, it may not be me. But being able to recognize and listen to people and find out what their true underlying concerns are is something I think gets lost at the higher level conversations that we have, unfortunately. Tyson, the, this, while we're on this topic of people like yourself and the other medical professionals that, that Andrew cited, two questions. One is, do you think this is now a permanent shift that you and many other providers, professionals, are from this point forward going to make communications and public engagement a permanent part of your professional life? Just as a matter of course, you've discovered the significance and the value of that. It's not going to fade away as we get through the worst of this pandemic. And the second question is, this comes with both upsides and downsides, right? We know the world out there is just intensely polarized and highly toxic. So people that step forward with opinions, even if they're presented in the most careful, balanced and subtle and considerate way, you're gonna take some hits from folks that are making it their game to do that and gratuitously and to exploit that advantage that comes with a toxic social media environment and the like. So can you talk about those two questions? The, is, is this a permanent feature now of you and Cecile and Ashish Jha and others, or you're going to make that shift and that's what we should be thinking about? And how do you manage the up and the downside? I do think that Things will not be the same from you know this moment forward, but I, I do think that a lot of the acute attention will probably die down because the our attention span is very short. The news media um, arc of attention is also very short. So even in the midst of cases going up, you know I've had recent segments that were bumped for things like the Kyle Rittenhouse trial or coverage of the spending bill um, and things like that. So. I think once the pandemic becomes more of an endemic problem, I don't think COVID is going to go away, but it may not be on our headlines anymore once we have a little bit better control of it. I do think that some of the acute attention will die down, but I do hope that we will be able to establish this as a moment where we can communicate issues, especially when it comes to infectious diseases that affect us on a more regular basis. Um, before COVID, there was a yearly pandemic that spread across the globe that claimed tens of thousands of American lives that's going to continue in uh, influenza. And so communicating risk mitigation, you know, mask wearing, limiting gatherings, staying home if you're sick, making sure that people have uh, parental leave if they, if they or their family members are sick. These are all things that would also save lives once COVID is, you know, less in the headlines. When it comes to you know my intent moving forward, I am a better physician when I'm able to educate. Uh, and that's one thing I learned about myself in college and medical school, that I tend to hold on to knowledge when I can explain it to others. Something about being able to, to take knowledge, reprocess it, 
and putting in a different format for others really sticks with me. And that's actually one of the reasons I work in academic medicine around fellows and residents and medical students and so I can teach. And so I see my media outreach as just another extension of educating. It's just a very different audience. But being able to, to do that, I think, makes me a better physician, being a, a communicator. And it helps lay the framework for the, all the other work that I do. Um, you know, I, I take calls from friends and colleagues, you know, pretty much every day who have questions about COVID related to, you know, what they should do, gatherings, vaccines. And e each conversation that I have informs in some form or fashion how I communicate about the pandemic to others. And so it, it all helps me, uh, you know, meet this moment where my unique training of infectious disease and critical care, African-American physician, you know, from an underserved community, you know, being able to interact with others in this way and communicate out is something that I really valued and I hope to, uh, to keep doing going forward. You mentioned before that, of course, living in Charlottesville, it's a community that, you know, is polarized. It's, you know, there's people on the, on the left and there's people on the right and in some cases far left and far right. As a communicator and as a doctor, how do you square all that and try to just, you know, stay above the fray? Frankly, it is hard sometimes. So Charlottesville is a community that gets national attention for a lot of the wrong reasons, unfortunately. And, uh, and this is a very nuanced sort of place. So, you know, every city, every town has its own sorts of issues, but they tend to be a little unique here. The overwhelming reason that people are ending up in my ICU now is uh, because they're unvaccinated. And that tracks very strongly with uh, conservative-leaning folks who are unvaccinated. They're making up a larger and larger percent of those who remain unvaccinated. And if you look at states that voted for Trump versus states that voted for Biden, you see that there are higher deaths in states that voted for um, former President Trump. And even if you look on a more granular level and you look at counties within states that voted for Trump, you see that there are higher death rates that are linked to the vaccine. I believe it's two to one is the ratio now. And so we straddle all of this. But like I said before, many times when it comes to health, I, I think People are generally willing to trust the physicians and healthcare professionals that are in front of them. And especially when you're from that community, people tend to trust their local source of information more than any other source, uh, certainly more than national news, certainly more than social media. And so the most traction that I get is with folks who are in my own community. And that's regardless of what side of the political aisle that they're on. You know, when a segment goes on local news in Charlottesville, it actually gets attention and there's talk and buzz generated around it and you're able to break through that. But um, you just keep trying, you know, it's because um, it's so important in each person that you can reach. And you realize that, you know, the power of a message might encourage someone to get vaccinated or get their child vaccinated or have them wear a mask. And that has the ability to actually save people's lives. And, that, and that's a very good inspiration to continue to try to cut through some of the mess that we're going through. Tyson, it must, I mean, you mentioned earlier that the ICU is, should not be seen as a political environment, but I would imagine that there are lots of occasions when you have people who are unvaccinated, who were resistant to, to this. They may have been openly hostile to vaccines. They may not just be on the fence, they may be openly hostile to this. And then they find themselves in this desperate situation. 
and, and they're dependent on you for care. And they may come in with all sorts of other mistaken ideas, like give me ivermectin or this, uh, this isn't what I, I couldn't possibly be suffering from COVID. It must be something else. You must face a really difficult and challenging environment there as an African-American physician straddling this urban rural divide, straddling the vaccinated unvaccinated divide in a place where we know from the Charlottesville, August 17th, I mean, all of that confrontation that came forward still lives within Charlottesville as an active measure. We still have court cases. All of the tensions are, are very real. So I expect it's difficult to escape that in the ICU. Are you facing that and how are you handling it? Yeah, and, and that has become a, a a different element of practicing critical care now in, in a disease where everyone has an opinion. Everyone is, uh, you know, at least knows what's going on in their local community. And a lot of people have strong opinions and some that are fed by misinformation or disinformation. And so we have had instances where, you know, patients or their families demanded specific therapies that are not data driven like ivermectin and it's become contentious or even some who deny that, you know, they have COVID or or that, you know, they're suffering from it. There is a recent conspiracy that you know, doctors are putting patients on ventilators to make them intentionally sicker. And so I noticed that a lot of patients, you know, even as they're gasping for breath, were just, you know, telling us to not put them on a ventilator when it was clearly something that they needed to do because they were afraid that they were going to die. That's become the one of the toughest parts of navigating this because trust is usually assumed when someone's in the hospital. You trust that the patient, uh, that the person taking care of you, um, putting in orders and you know putting in IVs and giving you medicines has your best interests at heart. And when that's questioned, you know, that just adds to the stress of taking care of that patient or the family who's calling. Uh, so, uh, you know, I would say most, more often, it's regret for not having been vaccinated, for not having taken this seriously. But we do occasionally, and we do recall more when it's a contentious relationship. And, you know, those almost never end well because you don't have a therapeutic alliance with either the patient or the family member. And that, you know, I, I tell my team all the time that, and one of the most important medicines that we can give is trust and therapeutic alliance with the family. Um, you know, even if there's a bad outcome, you know, there's still good that we can do if there's mutual trust on both sides. And when that's eroded, uh, that makes it harder to take care of patients, unfortunately. Let me ask you about boosters. You know, boosters are now available to everyone in America who's over 18. Is this a good thing? I mean, we're looking at what's unfolding in Germany and Austria elsewhere in Europe as political violence is erupting over the recent surge there. What about boosters here in America? And do you think we're on the brink of maybe political violence surrounding vaccines and boosters here? And mandates. Yeah, and mandates too. That's right. This is a very complicated topic and one of the most complicated parts of the response to the pandemic because, uh, you know, just to be honest, I have my opinion, which I'll share soon, but I have colleagues who have very different opinions on this. And it's a situation where everyone has good points. And so in general, I do support widespread availability of booster shots for the public. So when I saw states like Colorado saying that they were going to expand, I generally was supportive of that. And I think for a couple of reasons, 
And we're heading into the winter where we're seeing cases going up in Europe, and we tend to track just a little bit behind them in terms of what happens here. And there, there's a lot of knowledge that we've accumulated about vaccination in general. So we know, for instance, that when you have higher levels of antibody, you're less likely to get sick. You're also less likely to spread to others. Combine that with the fact that we've seen higher rates of breakthrough infections in older populations and those who have compromised immune systems, and only a third right now of those people are boosted. And so we still have a high-risk community and you know spread that's happening in communities with cases going up already. And so I think that anything we can do to help mitigate that is something that we should do if you have ready access to it. So you know boosters. You know, my, my, many of my colleagues would argue that boosters are not intended to save lives for younger people. Um, but I would argue that, you know, waves of virus circulating tend to start with younger populations and then it spreads over to older populations. And so I think decreasing the rate of spread in younger folks makes just as much sense when we're even thinking about trying to save lives from, from rate to infections. So I think it makes sense. Now, the arguments on the other side, which are valid in, um, in a lot of cases, are that we still have a large gap when it comes to global vaccine equity. And so when you have uh, entire continents like Africa, which is below 10% full vaccination compared to more developed nations, you see that there's a, a large disparity. And so I have no doubt that if I was international based and especially working on developing countries, I'd be screaming mad like some of my colleagues that were even having this conversation. I think that when it comes to trying to protect people in my community, in my ICU, this is something that I think should be available. And we do have supply enough to do it. We do have to also you know, make sure that we're vaccinating the global population as well. But I do think heading into the winter, this is the right decision. Tarzan, I want to carry this a little bit further. I was really amazed this weekend to see the the sweep of violence appearing in Europe. And it's coming in a couple of ways. It's under the pressure of this fourth wave that's hitting, which is just terrible. And that may be in store for us not so long. It's coming in the midst of mandates and lockdowns, and it's coming amidst an alliance between anti-vaccine forces, those that are openly very hostile towards mandates and vaccines, an alliance between those forces and oftentimes right-wing, ultra-right-wing opposition forces that were seeing violence erupt in Vienna, in Rotterdam, across Germany, elsewhere. And I had been in a conversation two weeks ago with Ugar Sahin, the, he and his wife, the co-founders of the BioNTech slash Pfizer vaccine. And one of the things that he said that really startled me two weeks ago was he said, there will be more violence. Violence is coming. And I didn't fully understand what he was saying, but it was a very stark message. And sure enough, I, now we begin to see what he means. And he's speaking as a person based in Mainz, Germany, he's been watching this. And my question to you is, do you agree with that sort of analysis? And is this something we need to be worried about now as we enter the winter and likely we'll see a wave and a surge? Because we're not that different in terms of the alignments that are happening politically. And I, I wish I could tell you that I, I don't foresee, you know, anything like that in our country, but we've seen that we have elements that are willing to, to become violent um, in our country. And so that, that is something that we have to be wary of and to be ready for. 
And one thing I will say is that when it comes to vaccine requirements or, or mandates, there is a difference I've, I've noticed when it comes from state entities or, or, or federal entities versus from employers in that the response to federal level vaccine mandate or state level tends to be a little more negative and organized resistance to that. And I think it ties into the general theme of folks who connect with individual freedoms and, and rights and, and things like that. I would argue that we're in a public health emergency and you know the rules need to be a little bit different, at least right now. But employer mandates tend to operate a little differently. You know, they they get some pushback for sure. Um, but you don't meet it. I haven't seen it met with this level of vitriol that I've seen before. We've, uh, the University of Virginia rolled out a vaccine requirement that initially started with a vaccine or test and now is converted to a full vaccine requirement. And, you know, I, one of, you know, my roles of communicator, one of the things that I, I get to the, the privilege of actually, I consider is, uh, employees who are still hesitant to get vaccinated. I often talk with them and discuss with them what their concerns are. And I, I don't often meet a lot of frank anger at the decision, but it's a lot of concern around your individual health risk. And I think that's because people have a relationship with their employer and generally do not feel like the employer is out to you know, take advantage of them or, or the like, and they have relationships at work with uh, other coworkers. And so the, the sense there, there's more of a sense of community in your work environment than, you know, someone who's, you know, from outside, you know, mandating from above that you do something. So I, I do think that if we have more employers that are willing to take that step and say, you know, we're going to require vaccination, I think that, you know, this would work a little better, to be honest. And then we, we might get to a point if there's a critical mass that just for someone who's seeking employment, um, trying to switch jobs or trying to enter the labor force, it becomes more convenient for you to be vaccinated versus not vaccinated because there's uh, there's so many of you that your potential job prospects would require vaccination. So I think for the, the, a lot of people that are on the fence at this point, you know, having a gentle push towards getting there versus a uh, top down mandate makes a lot of sense. And people like, you know, Scott Gottlieb has you know talked about this as well. That you know, federal mandates are probably not the way to go on this. Yeah, I mean, we what we have with the President Biden's federal mandate, of course, is it's sweeping. It's going to touch the vast majority of, of employees in the in the United States. Eighty percent of employees, if if it's implemented, it's drawn opposition from at least fifteen governors. There's legislative action being taken in defiance of this at the state level. A judge has now put a stay on this. It's likely to hit the Supreme Court. So it is going to escalate as a moment of legal contestation. And let's hope that it stays as a legal contestation, does not become an excuse for escalating confrontation that becomes violent. But as a nation, we are so polarized. And this issue of mandates has just gotten swept into that really rapidly even as we see the benefits of mandates, right? We're seeing our vaccinations tick up in many different places. And I agree with you. The fact that this is given cover to and encouraged large employers to step forward is a terribly important factor in the equation. Andrew, you had a thought? Yeah, well, I, I was just going to ask about what you're seeing 
with the reports that local and state public health forces are starting to collapse and that the workforces are leaving. I mean, I think we saw a statistic that over 500 health professionals have left their jobs as a result of this. Are you seeing that in your community? I'll say that even before the pandemic started, there was a large public health funding gap, and that's only been exacerbated by the crisis. And we have seen that our local health district has been under enormous strain to try to respond to this, really at every aspect when it comes to testing, contact tracing, vaccinations, of course. Pre-existing COVID, we had about a $4.5 billion estimated funding gap to provide just the basic health capabilities. We kind of had the highest levels around the 1960s, 1970s when Medicare was passed. And then our funding as a percentage of um, the federal contribution went to its lowest levels in the 1990s within a a small bump around 9-11 when there was concern around potential terrorists using agents like anthrax or smallpox into the population. But from that point on, we've lost about 50,000 positions, which represented one-fourth of the total public health uh, labor force since 9-11. And one of the reasons is public health funding, which I would argue needs to be very separate from our care delivery, but it often gets lumped together. And so when issues come up with just a rising cost of healthcare, a lot of times public health funding is used to, to cut. So for example, the ACA originally had about $15 billion that was focused specifically for federal, state, and local level public health response. Uh, that was cut over 50% to cover a physician fee cut that was scheduled for CMS um, uh, to happen. The sequestration in 2013 cut funding levels across the board uh, to the CDC by about 5%, 200 million for state and local health agencies that wasn't replaced. Uh, So there was already a crisis at the public health level going into this. And so when we had to depend on our public health agency early on in the pandemic and realized that, you know, it was really only about two or three people that were doing this work at our local health district, you know, we saw how big this problem was and, you know, we had to step in and kind of, you know, take over for some of the testing and the like. So it's a big problem. And I think a lot of it relates to how we fund public health institutions. I think we need to have a separate line item to, and, you know, protect our public health agencies to make sure that they have the capability and the wherewithal to withstand another pandemic, but also, just to be able to do the core work that they're supposed to do, which many would argue they didn't have from the beginning. Tyson, before we run out of time, I want to ask you to talk about your family. I mean, obviously your family is terribly important to you, but it's also become terribly important to you in your role as a communicator, as a medical professional. You've, When you read pieces by Catherine Wu, great journalist, The Atlantic, She's spoken to you a number of times and, and you've used the experiences of this pandemic, how you've experienced it with your wife, with your two children, your two young children. You've used it in very powerful, and illustrative ways. Can you just talk about that? Talk about what this pandemic has been like for you and your family over the two year span? What were the major moments? But also, why is this such a, an effective way of communicating? do you think? Well, I, I, you know, James Baldwin is one of my favorite people of all time. And um, and I'm paraphrasing him, but um, he said, I don't believe what you say because I see what you do. And I think that illustrates that no matter what you say, you know, your actions and how you're managing your own health and your own affairs 
you know, ends up speaking louder than what you actually say. And then this is also a moment where we have a health crisis that is affecting nearly everyone on the planet. And so the questions that people have, you know, I may have for myself, or I certainly had at one point, you know, how to keep my family safe, you know, should I, you know, get my child vaccinated? These are all issues that I've struggled with in my own household. And so one thing I've learned throughout the course of my training is that Patients are generally interested in the health decisions that their own providers make. And I think that extends to public health experts and communicators. And so it means one thing to say, I think you should get children vaccinated. It means another to say my own child who's this age and has, you know, these medical problems, if they do, I'm choosing to get them vaccinated. You know, it, it does a couple of things. The first, you know, it, it opens up you know, people understand how you're managing your family and, and what you're doing for your own in the midst of a pandemic. And, and it makes you relatable as a second. We tend to listen and communicate better when we can humanize the person on the other end. And so all of these communicators that you've mentioned, Dr. Grounder, Ashish Jha, Lena Wen, you know, I also know what they've done in the midst of the crisis for their own families because they're also open and talk about them. I know that, you know, Dr. Hotez, for example, has a, a daughter who's autistic and, you know, not able to wear a mask the way that others are able to. You know, being able to talk about your own family and what you're doing is a it allows people a window into, you know, your life, but also how you're processing all this because we're all struggling with this together. And so I, I felt that you know going into the holidays and especially with children getting vaccinated, this was a great opportunity to share what I'm doing in my household so that people can kind of understand. Okay, this person who's been out here reading the articles. Uh, but also has a family and, and, and has the same issues that I have, this is what they're doing. And the last part is that my my son, who's seven years old, he's been very patient <laughs> with getting vaccinated and and told uh, Catherine uh, back when I got vaccinated in December that he was very jealous. But he's also seen how I've been able to connect with others through communicating. And he got a kick out of the, the notion that he was interviewed for an article that other parents shared with their kids and um, helped relieve some of their anxiety around getting vaccinated. You know, it's one thing that I've learned about communicating is that you don't know what impact it's going to have. And of course, you know, we can highlight some of the negative experiences and backlash that I've had, but it's overwhelmingly been positive. And and being able to talk about what I'm doing in my family and how I'm responding to the pandemic and giving that window in, into my life has helped others make good decisions around their own health. And so it's overwhelmingly positive in a way to connect with others by opening up a little bit of yourself, you know, with with permission and making sure that, you know, everyone's comfortable. My wife, you know. Uh, we have certain rules when it comes to what we share, but we did decide together that we wanted to be open about what we were doing. Thank you. Can you just speak a little bit about community-based action before we close? This is something you've put a lot of emphasis on in talking about racial inequities and other inequities that our country faces and how to go about fixing them, whether we're talking about access to vaccines or access to other services the legacies of his, uh, suspicion and mistrust, legacies of historical abuse that black communities experience in the medical system. You've talked about community-based actions. Can you explain a little bit more about what you mean and how you see that playing through? 
Yeah, what I mean by emphasizing the need for community-based action and outreach is that um, people do tend to trust people in their community more than leaders at the state and, uh, and national level. And you know, every community has layers of complexity to it that relate to a lot of issues that other communities have, but they're in the context of that community, right? So take Charlottesville, for instance, where I live. You know, many communities struggle with issues of racial equity and justice, but we had the experience of August 2017, where white supremacists marched through and Heather Heyer died on August 12th. And so this is something that, of course, a lot of people know about, but if you live in this community, it's very different because we walk by the memorial when we go to get ice cream on the downtown mall. Uh, many universities, yeah, University of Virginia is a very great institution and lots of universities have town and gown issues. But, you know, we have a founder who was uh, racist and held property in the form of enslaved laborers. And some of those descendants now work for this university. And that's the relatively unique experience for us. And so when I speak and connect with someone who's in this community who also lives here, who's at, who has lived here, it's kind of like all these layers of complexity or something that we both understand and we can meet on a much deeper level and make progress in that form because, you know, just there's so much mutual understanding that happens in both ways. Uh, so, you know, another example I can give is our Blue Ridge Health District that is our lead public health, local public health district here. They've been communicating, uh, trying to, you know, get folks vaccinated and trying to, you know, message people around, you know, the safe things to do in their community. They have a van that kind of goes around. And when you speak with them, you know, these are folks who are from Charlottesville, the surrounding counties. They represent the true diversity that we have in our region, both economically, politically, culturally, socially. And so they're able to connect with the community in ways that many of us, uh, you know, even as physicians, can't connect. So more often, your local leaders will be the ones that are more trusted, who understand the complexity and the context of, of your life. And for that reason, it makes it easier to trust that, that resource. And so that's why it's so vitally important that we have institutions locally that have the resources to, to do outreach, to communicate around you know, health issues, to combat racial disparities and systemic racism because the community has a voice you know, in that effort and they're just better able to connect with that community. Dr. Bell, we always like to ask our you know, uh, guests what gives them the most optimism going forward amid this pandemic? What gives you, if any, optimism going forward? I consider myself an internal optimist. And, you know, at times this has been hard with the, with the pandemic, but the things that have given me hope are the recognition that we're in a moment where we fundamentally have to change a lot about how we think about health, interacting with each other, the role of policy, the role of health insurance, the role of providers, the role of communication. And oftentimes we get stuck in our own ways of doing things and it becomes kind of the cultural norm or the practice. But the pandemic has really forced us to re-examine, you know, everything about how we deliver care and how we think about public health. And I have hope that we can use the moment to when we're forced to get out of our comfort zone to find the good that we were able to create out of this. And use that going forward to meet the challenge of delivering health care. That's my fundamental hope and why I have optimism. 
Well, we want to thank you so much for sharing that optimism with us and also sharing your, your insights and keen observations about the pandemic. Truly a pleasure talking to you. Steve and I will chalk this up as one of our very best podcasts. So thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you. Um, it was a pleasure being here. Thanks, Tyson. And I wish you and your family a great Thanksgiving. Thank you. Same to you all. Coronavirus Crisis Update is produced by Liz Bulver and Samantha Chivers. You can find our full catalog of podcasts, including Pandemic Planet and AIDS 2021, on our homepage at csis.org slash podcasts. Thank you.